Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we use data to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in Hong Kong. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be continuing the series that we started last week on the economics of love. Uh, we'll be talking specifically about the economics of chocolate. So stick around. Some fascinating territory to cover there. But first, something more from the news. And the data point there is $220 billion. That is the net worth as of February 2023 of Bernard Arnault. That makes him the richest man in the world officially going viral today is the new lineup of the world's richest people on the bloomberg billionaires index elon musk once worth as much as 340 billion dollars was dethroned as the world's richest person today bernard arnaud the founder of lvmh took the title instead one of the most important businessmen in the world certainly the most important in france right now he is the ceo of lvmh moet hennessy louis vuitton which is basically the first word in luxury now for people in the united states that may be an unfamiliar name at least compared with our own oligarchs, um, the mega-rich like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. But Arnaud is a fixture in his native country of France, so we thought we'd dig in and try to introduce him to the rest of us. So, Adam, just to start with basics, how exactly did Bernard Arnaud come to his massive uh, wealth? Well, I think like most other extremely wealthy people, he didn't start off poor. Um, he comes from a, a business family um, from the industrial, I mean, now quite hard scrabble textile town of Roubaix. Um, his father owned a civil engineering company. And Arnaud, who you know came up through the classic uh, French elite track, he went to the Ecole Polytechnique, uh, the chief you know engineering school of, of France, um, pushed his father. He's born 49, so he comes into his own in the 70s, and he, he pushes his father to take the company out of civil engineering and move them into real estate. He successfully repackages the company as a real estate firm, sells a slice of its interests. And then in the 80s, through his excellent contacts in government circles, um, gets wind of the fact that the French government is looking for somebody to take over the textile and retail conglomerate, the center of which was the Christian Dior business, which at the time was in serious financial trouble. And again, exploiting this network of you know excellent contacts that he has, he partners up with the you know investment bank Lazard Frères. He forms a financial holding company, and with that, then 
sets about taking charge of you know what we'll call i mean it has its the boussac saint frere empire but actually you know to the world it's known essentially as christian dior he acquires a controlling interest in in that group proceeds to strip it of all but its most essential workforce acquiring a fearsome reputation the guy the guy goes by the, the moniker of terminator um hmm. he sacked thousands and thousands of people which was a promise he had made not to do as part of the takeover he then with Moet Hennessy the champagne brand and Louis Vuitton founds LVMH and then in a ruthless two-year struggle between 87 and 89 blocks an effort by the Louis Vuitton interest to take charge of LMVH and flips the deal on them so that instead he emerges as the controlling shareholder in the LVMH um, fashion luxury conglomerate, which is now his vehicle for, for spectacular wealth. Yeah, and reading about LVMH, this company that is responsible for his wealth, as you described, it clearly specializes in luxury products of various kinds. And that got me wondering about whether luxury <laughs> is a coherent industry of its own. I mean, what exactly is the luxury industry selling? I mean, because it seemed to me it's a kind of reference to high quality products relative to other kinds of products of its own kind. So how does a company specialize in something so inherently variable and relational as this kind of adjective luxury? Yeah, I think you point to an important tension. I mean, obviously you're right. Like in, in common parlance, luxury is a, just a general indicator of quality, a certain generosity, you know, money, no object kind of uh, excess, privilege, quality, and so on. But in business speak nowadays, it refers quite distinctly to the cluster of high-end, high-valued, high-brand value goods, which are in the fashion space, leather goods, handbags, quintessentially, um, fine jewellery, of which the most exclusive is... um, you know, uh, not, you know, essentially made to measure for individual clients. The same is true, of course, of the very high-end fashion. Writing instruments, so pens, watches, cars, perfumes, yachts, interior design, the most high-end real estate, the most high-end hotels, the most luxurious food brands, I don't know, caviar or something like that, wine and spirits, and particularly champagne. Um, cars up to a point, and we're kind of really talking Ferrari more than Porsche when we're in the real luxury end. Various types of spa products, massage, wellness products, and then antiques and ultimately art. Um, and it's a fluid category, essentially shaped inherently, as you're saying, by taste. And taste is obviously debatable. And in some sense, this is perhaps not debatable, except it is sociologically real. You know, how people pave and what they choose to value is something that we may not be able to fully explain, but we can certainly map it. And by being able to map it, we can then make money out of it or the brands which cater to this market can. And it's a huge market, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of quality spending, luxury spending that falls under this moniker. Now, when I think about Arnaud, I realized that the first time I came upon his name was about 10 years ago. And it was in reference to threats he was making at the time to abdicate his French citizenship. This was during uh, the presidency of François Hollande, the predecessor of Emmanuel Macron, who was from the Socialist Party. Hollande wanted to raise wealth taxes. And yeah, Arnaud's response 
was to say he was going to uh, give up his French passport and move to Belgium and become a Belgian. That caused all sorts of controversy in France. He ultimately didn't do it. But it did get me wondering whether this kind of threat is common and whether there's a pull factor here, whether other European countries are trying to attract uh, Europe's ultra-wealthy. I mean, is that something that European countries are competing over, the ultra-rich like Arnold? Yeah, I mean, they they do. Um but not as much as uh, as American states compete with each other in American counties. I mean, if you think about the way in which Florida, for instance, took advantage of the COVID crisis to attract ultra high net worth um, individuals from um, New York um, or Sun Valley or locations like that, um, uh, compete quite overtly with you know ultra low property taxes and uh, low income taxes. But yes, absolutely, there is competition. I mean, it's also worth saying that if you come from Roubaix, I mean, Roubaix is essentially on the border with Belgium. So, hmm. you know, it's not entirely it's not entirely unreasonable for Arno to say that. I, you know, I wish I'd just been born a couple of hundred yards away and then I wouldn't be dealing with this pesky wealth tax that you want to impose. I mean, it's also worth saying that he has subsequently insisted that it had nothing to do with tax, uh, tax evasion. It was about the stability of the enterprise and, you know, the inheritance and, and has, has, has renounced any... any um, you know, the, the, the idea that this was ever, ever serious. But across Europe, yes, there is absolutely locational politics. If you think about the Formula One race drivers or the tennis stars who tend to be residents of Monaco and indeed citizens of Monaco to take advantage of the very low tax rates there, um, that's quite typical. Um, Liechtenstein, tax havens like that, or simply, you know, countries like Ireland or indeed the Netherlands, both of which offer extremely advantageous tax conditions. So there is a, clearly this tax competition, but the very fact that it was a scandal in Arno's case, I think points to the, and that he was ultimately forced to retract, um, I think points to actually how difficult it is for somebody of his ilk. I mean, I think a couple of couple of billion here or there, and, and people will probably not notice, but if you're somebody, a whale of his size, I mean, overwhelmingly the richest person in France and the richest man in the world right now, for him to change his nationality remains, I think, something of a scandal in Europe. Yeah, if I recall correctly, you refer to him as a whale. And I think the French had a pejorative term for people who were trying to evade taxes. I think they called them pigeons. So I think he was sort of, this, this was part <laughs> of the scandal. He was sort of being referred to as a pigeon by trying to flee the coop, I guess. But yeah, I guess this led to another set of questions about Arnaud's political views and whether those are known. I mean, obviously, Arnaud is a prominent figure in France, but is he a kind of political figure? Is he active in the political scene? And I guess if we do know what his views are, are they they're basically the same as wealthy people everywhere? Does this sort of Arnaud of France in a particular way, or does he kind of whose views transcend the kind of local issues. I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's a low-tax guy. I mean, his, mm. his beef with Hollande was over the wealth tax, and he backed Macron, continues to back Macron very actively. And one of the things that Macron did in his first term as president was abolish the wealth tax. Um, so, you know, gifting the likes of Arnaud a considerable benefit. I mean, Arnaud also hobnobbed with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, very rich people who know each other. They're both in the hotel, you know, luxury business, or at least Trump fancies himself to be in that line. Um, the most significant intervention of late has been his, his white knight role in connection with the leading French radio station, uh, Europe 1, 
which was up for sale sensitively at the time of the recent presidential election in 2022. And the, the, the fear of the Macron camp was that a rival oligarch, uh, Vincent Bolloré, who is a, a huge name in, in infrastructure, in Franc Afrique as well, was going to swoop in and convert a chain of radio stations to a right-wing Fox News pro-Le Pen kind of stance. And at that moment, um, it's quite clear, I think, that the Macron camp was in touch with Arnaud's team and Arnaud rapidly established a strong minority position in the ownership of the radio station, which is pretty hard to justify on other terms. It doesn't correspond to other interests of, of, of his business, um, but was extremely reassuring, I think, for the Macron camp to know that in you know the battles for control of the private media in France, they have an uh, you know an ally, an ally on their side who has both deep pockets and utter ruthlessness in his business dealings. Um, so he is a figure, I think, above all, identified with Macron. He was with Macron on his recent trip to the United States. Um, he's truly, I think, um, in that sense. And Macron himself positions himself as a somewhat unpolitical president uh, in a way, but he is emphatically pro-business, he's emphatically pro-big business and a French presence in the world. And Arnaud thoroughly represents that version of you know, their, you know, their vision of France's future. I wanted to end with a question in parallel to the one that we previously posed in our segment about the Indian billionaire, Gautam Adani. And so what exactly does Arnaud's wealth, you know, his acquisition of this wealth, his use of it, what exactly does that tell us about what kind of country that France is? I mean, what kind of capitalism is at work here? Yeah, it's a fascinating contrast, actually. I mean, interestingly, that Adani started out in luxury, if you like, in the diamond business, right? But the Adani's hmm. route from there was into infrastructure, to ports, to railways, and now electricity generation, whereas Arnaud's route is to build, you know, the most comprehensive global um, luxury brand uh, I think the world has ever seen. I mean, now it includes Birkenstock for, for crying out loud. It's hilarious. Hmm. Um, everything from champagne to German. I didn't sandals. know that Birkenstock um, yeah, is not, is not recent, German anymore. It's a, it's a very recent recent acquisition, um, and um, so two very different business models. Also, Adani, um, you know absolutely defined by the project, as we say in last time, of Indian nation building, whereas LVMH is a French-branded firm, uh, but only 20% of its workforce is in France. Um, it operates globally. Its biggest market is the United States and then China and Asia. Um, it sells a European version of luxe of luxury to the world, but it operates and is set up globally. Um, it is incredibly untransparent about its supply networks for obvious reasons. It doesn't want to be tarnished with accusations of child labor or slave labor. Um, it, it is one of the least transparent um, fashion brands in the world, like in a completely different league from, you know, the, the good faith actors like the Lululemons and the Adidas's and even Gap, which have very rigorous policies in place. Um, uh, LVMH, um, like Prada and some of the other high-end houses, really makes very little effort, frankly, by the standards of those firms to ensure, or at least to publicly ensure and to be transparent about the way in which it ensures the integrity of its supply chain. So it's you know ruthless operator in that sense of globalism, because it's evident that 
many of its shoes, which are branded as French or Italian made, are in fact basically stitched in Romania. Um, it's quite clear that many of its leather goods come at various points through Bangladesh, and it's quite unclear what the circumstances of the labor employed there is. So it's um, it, it's it, it's a global organization rather than a, uh, a national business. Where I think there is a degree of alignment is that it's very difficult to tell the story of our nose or eyes without repeated, you know, not interventions exactly, but collaborations, if you like, with the French state. It's difficult to do business in France without at one point or other touching base with the power centre. Elites in France are formed in a very, you know, sociologists might say coherent way, others might say incestuous way. And uh, Arnaud is very much part of that of that kind of establishment. Well, uh, we will stop here, but we will be continuing to talk about uh, kinds of luxury products with chocolate in just a second when we come back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. 
each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is 7 million metric tons. That's the approximate total weight of all the chocolate that's eaten every year around the world. It adds up to a $124 billion annual business. So, Adam, 70% of the world's cocoa is grown in West Africa these days. Although it turns out that it's a crop that originates from South America. So what is the story here? How did cocoa go from a crop that only grew in Central America to one that was primarily now grown in, in West Africa? Well, it's a long and complicated story, and it's it's not one that we can establish with real precision because the origins of human cocoa culture are really to be found, we think, basically in the Mayan civilization the traces of which were so comprehensively eradicated by European colonialism in the 15 and 1600s that our access to its, it was a hugely literate, highly complicated culture, um, but our access to its history is quite is quite limited as a result of the destructiveness of, of the Western conquest. But no doubt it's with, with the Mayans really that very high levels of cocoa civilization emerge. And, and it's not an easy thing, right? Because Cocoa, cocoa does grow on trees, but it's not it's not exactly obvious how you get to the cocoa that we know, right? Because you have to take the beans from inside the pods and then you have to dry them, which is a kind of fermentation process, and then you have to roast them, and then you can grind them up and you can make something delicious out of them. And you know, cocoa, you know, is a good news story because it is, in a sense, this human discovery of this absolutely d- delicious commodity. Maybe by accident, because somebody got cross with the you know nasty taste of the the beans in the pod and tossed them into a fire and discovered they were delicious. Or, but in any case, it's, we don't know. There's no there's no really good origin story. But both Mayan and Aztec civilization had very elaborate cocoa cultures, up to and including using cocoa beans as a form of currency and a form of tax payment and tribute payment. And through then the European colonial networks, this extraordinary bean spreads around the world uh, within the Dutch empire. It spreads to Indonesia. But it's really the disintegration of notably the Portuguese empire in the early 19th century, which brings it to where it will then establish itself as the, you know, the main site of cultivation, which is West Africa. And it's in the course of the 20th century that the overwhelming majority of commercial chocolate that people eat assume it's coming from Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire. So what is the supply chain like from Cocoa Farm to the final chocolate product that we buy in our supermarket? Uh, I mean, how many middlemen are there exactly along the way, along that supply chain? So... It's a it's a very dramatic supply chain, um, and and I think that's really the message to put across in a, an episode like this. You know, when we think about global supply chains, cocoa is arguably the most dramatic in its implications because the cultivation of cocoa in West Africa, in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, um, is done by small peasant farmers. Um, 
it really is an instance in which something that shows up in your daily diet in the West um, is coming from a peasant producer um, in some of the poorest places in the world. And considerable amounts of child labour, though efforts are made by both the local governments and local communities and the managers of the global supply chain to contain that. Within those countries, it's a three-step process, generally speaking. So you have peasants who sell to middlemen, who collect the beans in bags after the initial drying. And from there, it's then taken to national purchasing agents. The national purchasing bodies then go to the global market. And in the global market, they encounter what some people called grinder roasters. So these are not the chocolate firms that everyone knows, but the um, powerful uh, uh, powerhouse um, commodity companies four or five of them who command the global trade. So they grind the cocoa sometimes in in, in situ, they roast, um, and then they ship out. And it's those companies which then do the deals with the chocolate companies that everyone will know the names of, Mars, Mondelez, uh, who own Kraft, um, Nestle, Ferrero, Hershey's, and Lynch Brunkley, the the Swiss giant. And then the final step in the chain is the retailers who buy the chocolate off the and distribute the chocolate from the, the major producers. So it's six stages of a $130 billion industry, of, of which the original farmers maybe earn maybe 6% of the revenue and 94% of it is distributed across this extraordinary extended chain. Yeah, one of the things I noticed in, in reading about this is that the price of cocoa as a commodity is more volatile than the price of other agricultural commodities like wheat, wheat or corn. Um, you know, it goes up and down more than these than these other commodity products. And yet the price on the supermarket shelf is pretty steady. You know, when I, when I go to get some chocolate, you know, I don't notice these big swings. And that got me wondering about, yeah, the role of these commodity traders that you mentioned, these those middlemen. What role exactly are they playing in shaping this overall chocolate market? And yeah, then what role do they play in the deprivation of the cocoa farmers? The price of chocolate does vary, actually, quite a lot. I mean, it moves slowly, and it's not necessarily something you buy literally every day. It's not like the famous price of gas in the United States, which you know people monitor you know, daily as they refill their vehicles. It does, it does fluctuate. At the other end of the chain, the two cocoa buying boards in in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, which handle the vast majority of the beans, they do stabilize prices, but they stabilize prices on an annual basis. So for one harvest. So cocoa farmers in those regions go into the year knowing, broadly speaking, what the price is going to be. The variation for them comes on an annual basis as a result of the fluctuations in the power play between the marketing boards of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, the commodity trading middle firms in between, these grinder roaster firms, and then the chocolate firms who deal with the grinder roasters. And that's where the the fluctuations arise from. They arise, broadly speaking, from demand and supply factors, um, but these are hugely financialized markets. They're all hedged, so with derivative contracts of different types. The fluctuations are massive. The players on all three sides are highly sophisticated market actors. 
with differential access to credit, it has to be said. So the, the marketing boards of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire don't have the same capacity mm. to take out gigantic leveraged um, derivatives positions as the other two players in this system. But all of them are you know, knowledgeable, highly expert players. And the result is indeed a, a extraordinarily gyrating, gyrating market. And when the cocoa price falls, the um, poverty, I mean, real um, serious uh, starvation level poverty spreads across the cocoa growing belts of, of West Africa. It's an ongoing struggle. I mean, you know, there's been there have been talks about some kind of boycott really in the last couple of months. Um, it's a hugely, it's a very dynamic um, sector, and it's it's one of the few which has really resisted total liberalisation. So to shift to the side of production of the chocolate products that we buy uh, in the supermarket, it's no secret that it's small countries like Belgium and Switzerland that have the reputation as the kind of premier chocolate producers in the world. And I guess I was wondering whether that's the product of colonial era ties and path dependence and knowledge accumulation, or is this really more a matter of modern investments in chocolate production and then, or just more modern marketing? So, I mean, the, the cocoa system globally is a legacy of the colonial settlement um, system. I mean, all the way back to you know the original Western encounter disastrously with with Central American culture. So that that has to be said up front because if you look at the history of Belgium and Switzerland, even in the Belgian case, it's less obvious that their emergence as hubs of very high end chocolate production in Europe is principally driven by colonial collection. And in fact, many of the innovations in chocolate technology were more attributable at key moments in the early 19th century to French producers. Much of the commercial spread of chocolate is a British thing. Perhaps some of the key technologies for producing modern, smoothly edible chocolate bars come from Germany. And so in a sense, within an ecology which is thoroughly colonial and which, you know, the cultivation of cocoa outside Central America is, you know, inherently an effect of imperial power. The emergence of Belgium and Switzerland as these major coffee centers, I think, has got more to do with local innovation cultures and then clustering, you know, the same sort of clustering that we saw with perfume, for instance, where you get zones of expertise which are tied up with, for instance, in the Swiss case, the blending of chocolate with milk powder. That for us is a totally obvious thing to do, but it was in fact uh, Swiss uh, innovators in the 1830s that blended chocolate and milk for the first time to create milk chocolate. And in the, in the Belgium case, the emergence of Belgium in the 19th century um, as, a, as, a, as a chocolate center is, is to a large extent, I think the result of my migration from Switzerland, which was at the time still a relatively poor part of Europe, to Belgium, which was a very prosperous, rapidly industrializing part of Europe, and a and a Swiss apothecary uh, pharmacist called Jean Neuhaus moved to Brussels and established a shop in the 1850s where he was selling chocolate for medicinal purposes. And it's really out of that that you know the emergence of the the Belgian uh, chocolate culture emerges with famously the praline. So. 
you know the praline is this is this very sophisticated sort of piece of chocolate engineering where you have a hard shell and a soft center got it okay so we have the swiss to thank for milk chocolate i did not yep. did not know that it was actually them i guess uh finally i wanted to ask how patterns of chocolate consumption are changing around the world if at all i mean specifically i'm thinking here of the big emerging countries i mean do the chinese like chocolate uh how about in india are they consuming more chocolate than before and, and then frankly what about the united states i wonder is there more kind of room to grow for americans to consume chocolate than they already are so i mean the 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 world of chocolate consumption um is is hugely uneven i mean the absolute world champions of chocolate consumption are the europeans with the swiss up around almost 10 kilos a year. It's remarkable. If you fly to wow. Switzerland, take a Swiss airline, they literally, they bombard you with chocolate the whole time. You know, you're on the plane, you get chocolate when you sit down, you get chocolate when you leave. It's as though chocolate was some sort of, you know, essential to life. So they manage 10 kilos per year. The average for Europe is seven kilos. America's consumption is some way below that. But the big question for the future is precisely the two countries that you've mentioned because of their size and their rapid economic growth. And they're China and India. Um, and they're interesting because they have very different dessert cultures, right? So Chinese dessert culture is not really centered on sweetness. There's Chinese baking, of course, but or Chinese ice cream. But, but, you'll, but you'll know if you've tasted it that, in fact, it's more about flavor than it is about pure sweetness. And so... You know, a, a milk chocolate culture in particular is, a, is, is, is not the most obvious thing for China to adopt. And that shows up in the data. So currently, compared to the seven kilos that the Europeans eat on average, the Chinese manage 70 grams. So that's on average per capita, a small chocolate bar per year for every Chinese person. So it's one hundredth of what the Europeans consume. So you can imagine how the you know, the big chocolate players globally regard this market as this vast opportunity for growth. It may turn out that India is an easier sell, right? Because if anyone in the world has a sweet dessert culture, it's definitely the Indians. It's just they are the largest global consumers of sugar, in fact, um, in the world. Um, but um, so far, chocolate's a relative novelty in, in Indian dessert and, and snack culture. Um, currently, their consumption is about 140 grams, so twice that of China, but still a long way short. And so if the European and American manufacturers could raise India or China to Japan's level of consumption, Japan is the champion of chocolate consumption in Asia at two kilos per year, it would transform the entire business. It would add two billion consumers. It would totally transform the market. And I think then the questions of equity in the supply chain would just become, you know, impossible to ignore because you would be talking about a sector that rather than, as it were, pottering along at the level of inequality and exploitation, which, you know, if we're frank, we have just become sort of habituated to, you would need to understand then how on earth you would expand that system because that's what that kind of growth would require. I'd be remiss not to ask whether you eat chocolate, Adam. Are you a fan of chocolate? Oh, I am. Yeah. I mean, I grew up I grew up as a, you know, in England. In fact, my my father's family are from Bourneville, which is the the factory town. I mean, it's actually a model community of of Cadbury's, the ah. longtime English firm, the Quaker family. Um it was like visiting Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I was going to say, you're visiting, going it sound to sound like Charlie in the chocolate factory. Yeah, going to my grandparents' house, my my dad's family, um, 
you know, in Birmingham was uh, the whole place just smelled of chocolate. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, but it was, and in as in you know, a maturer person, they've acquired a taste for the finer things of life, and uh, mm-hmm. and obviously single denomination. You know, it's 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 really fascinating. I mean, chocolate has such an astonishing range of flavors. Mm. And so, I mean, recently I've become an aficionado of, of you know, high cocoa content, um, mm. single origin type of, of of chocolate, which, and to that extent, far less sweet and something that's better enjoyed with, you know, wine or something like that. So no uh, Hershey bars for you? No, no. Uh, I, I, I have to say I share most Europeans. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Just in I... comprehension with regard to American chocolate. I mean, even things like a Kit Kat, which mm. you'd think would be the same, are not. Um, I've, I've heard this unanimously that American chocolate just doesn't do the trick. All right, we will leave it there for now. Again, a cheerful segment. Uh, we will continue talking about love and the economics of love in the weeks ahead. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing.
Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.